Hey, everyone. It's Amber. In 2019, I began work on a podcast series that explored how historically marginalized groups were underrepresented in the IBD space. The plan was to record episodes during the spring conferences of 2020 with a goal of publishing in the fall of that same year. As you already know, those conferences didn't happen. I pivoted to recording remotely and finally published the seven-episode series in the spring of 2021. What you're about to hear next is an episode of that series, which is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm the host and producer, but it's a different animal from about IBD with a focused topic and some voices that haven't been heard on this feed before. Much has changed since the production of this series in 2021, but our discussions are still relevant in so many ways. While working on this show, I learned more things than I can list, and I hope you get a little something out of it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode two of Healthcare Disparities and IBD. I'm your host, Amber Tressel. In this limited series, we'll explore how inequalities in the healthcare system affect people in minority groups who live with IBD. We continue this discussion in learning about the patient experience from the perspective of women of color. My guest is Melody Narain Blackwell, who lives with Crohn's disease and is the founder of the nonprofit Color of Crohn's and Chronic Illness, or Kochi. After her diagnosis, Melody began hearing from members of the African-American community who lived with an IBD. What she discovered was that there was a need for a safe space where people of color who lived with chronic illness could come together and share experiences. As the true scope of the needs of patients in racial and ethnic minorities became clear, she realized that more needed to be done. Through Kochi, Melody is able to empower patients to learn more about their disease, advocate for themselves, and work more effectively with their healthcare providers. From Maryland, let's talk to the founder of Kochi, Melody Narain Blackwell. Melody, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. Amber, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I wonder if we could get started by talking about your journey with Crohn's disease, because you had a bit of a windy way in getting <laughs> diagnosed. So can you let me know how it all started and what that journey was like? Absolutely. So you know what's crazy is that I think I've battled Crohn's disease probably since I was a child. I used to have a lot of stomach aches and stomach situations. And what's so crazy is that I would actually go and sleep in the bathtub. Because I, and I don't know if other people talk about this, but it was like my body just always felt so hot when my, I was having stomach aches, which was at least two or three times a week. That's how frequent the stomach pains were when I was a child. And I remember as a teenager, I would take my pillow in and I would have my stomach just against the tub. So fast forward to uh, 2012 and I was, this is before I was pregnant with my son, I had a tumor in my face weird random tumor and it was removed and the doctor said you know there's something going on with you that's autoimmune I went to different rheumatologists i went to different um doctors and pcp to try to figure out if they could find something and they couldn't they didn't discover what was going on with me i got pregnant with my son that same year and i started to battle massive amounts of swelling like in my face in my lips uh, in my limbs. And it was so ironic. They just thought maybe it was hormonal. 
but even they could never figure out what was wrong. So fast forward again, I am starting to have these weird, like I'm still having the stomach aches and they came back and I'm starting to have these weird um, bleeding spottings from my colon. And there was something I felt a pop one day. I didn't know what that was, but from that day, I just had nonstop bleeding from my colon. It would just bleed I, no matter what I did. And then it started to feel like Edward Scissorhand had took up residence inside of my colon. And I went to um, a colorectal specialist and I told him he was a surgeon and I told him what was going on and that I had these blisters that, that had started popping frequently and I was putting tea tree oil on it because I was like self-diagnosing and self-medicating at this point and how I felt and how it felt to use the bathroom, all of that stuff. I was explaining everything to him and he was like, okay, I go back. He does an exam and then he goes, well, I don't think there's anything wrong, you know, and he's like, well, we'll, we'll take some tests. Fast forward three weeks after that, I'm driving to work and I'm sweating profusely and then I'm freezing. I can't lift my head up. It feels like um, Thumbelina and her friends are banging a hammer on my head. I ended up going to the emergency room that evening and they were like freaked out when they looked at my colon. The lady like jumped and she was like, oh, we're going to give you an antibiotic. There's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. <laughs> You're not telling me something I don't know. I had to call someone to pick me up from um, the urgent care because I couldn't lift my head up at this point. I was a danger driving. And I called this doctor and I said, there's something wrong. I'm having extreme pain. I don't know what to do. I, you know, there's something wrong. You're going to figure this out. I go into his office and he goes to do an exam. And as soon as he touches like my bottom, a golf ball size abscess burst everywhere. <gasps> and he goes, you're right. You have an infection. There's something wrong. Oh <laughs> it's not funny now. I mean, it's funny now, but it was not. It was funny not funny then. then. No, it was. It, I can laugh like, uh, duh. I told you three weeks ago. I thought I had an infection and that something was wrong. The next day, I'm rushing to surgery. I was. My body was so affected that I had to have an epidural. I couldn't be like sedated with general anesthesia. I had to have an epidural because they couldn't put me to sleep. And I go through that. They they say, he says, oh, you have about six fistula. <laughs> but three weeks ago, you didn't see that anything was wrong. Uh, and so he, he puts tetons in there. So I now have these drains and I have six fistula. And then I have, like, I go through this process. We're trying to figure out what's wrong. I come back, he does an exam, like a couple days later. It's looking fine, but I have tetons. And he's like, well, we got to figure this out. You know, I'm not sure what this could be. Um, let's just do this or do that. I, you know, maybe it's Crohn's. I said, no, 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 no. It's not Crohn's. I don't have Crohn's. Crohn's is a stomach thing. I, you know, I've had stomach things happen to me, but this is not a stomach thing. This is a butt thing. So you got to fix my butt. I don't know <laughs> what you're going to do, but you're going to fix it. Yeah, that's, that's all you have to do. And I didn't mention this before, but I was already feeling issues with my limbs. I had been told like a year before that I had gout. And so I was having a lot of these feet pains for almost two years. And so I'm now the feet pain after the surgery, it's building up. So it's hard for me to walk. I'm literally dragging my legs some days. And we go from this happening in July now to September. And it's September 10th and I have to have another surgery. The abscesses were still there. They're popping. I'm in pain. I'm bleeding profusely. Another surgery. Have another surgery. Now I have eight fistula. And I go to an appointment in a couple, like a week after that. And he says, you know, 
I have to be honest with you, after looking at your test and doing this exam and, you know, my colonoscopy was squeaky clean, but he looked at other stuff and he says, you know, this looks like a rare form of Crohn's disease, perianal Crohn's. And I'm looking at him like, why did you give this to me? Like, I'm thinking he gave it, like, you gave me this, <laughs> you know? I'm so upset and frustrated. Like, is this going to be my life forever that I'm just going to have these holes? In my head, they're like holes, like little tunnels that they find their way from your colon down. And what's crazy is I started to get a rectal vaginal fistula and it was hurting so badly. I was now in a place where my mobility had started to really decrease. And there were many days that I had to crawl somewhere or because I can't get out of the bed and stand. Like as soon as I stood up, I fell down on my face. So I'd have to practice sliding out of the bed and crawling to get to the bathroom. It was, it was mentally paralyzing for a moment until I said, this is something we got to figure our way out. It's not going to control me. When I finally got to the to mid-October, I had received the diagnosis that I did have Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. And when did they start treating it, though? Because you clearly needed some kind of treatment. The surgeon gave me like methotrexate because he said, you know, it's looking like you could have Crohn's. I want to start you on this. They had been giving me prednisone, of course, the, the drug that can be assigned to anything but isn't great for you so we got that (laughs) and then methotrexate and then I went on to like azathioprine and you know I was going through a series of medicines but now by the time that you know being who I am when they said you could have Crohn's disease of course I'm reading every single thing I could put my fingers on those are the medicines that they gave me and then we got to Humira and then Eucerus and then Stellara. Oh okay because I was going to say like you know, you clearly needed some heavy duty stuff to clear <laughs> right. up all those fistula because what they were doing for you just obviously wasn't working. No. Yeah. <laughs> so did they ever find any inflammation? You had a colonoscopy and it was clear. All, all of them. I had several and they were all, my colon always just looked like a nice little empty tube. I had the pictures and I'm like, how is this possible? You are in there. Stop playing with me. But it wasn't showing that it was in there. So you're the poster child for complications. Yes. Clearly. That don't even look present, which is crazy. Yeah. And it's interesting because at the same time, your story is very similar to what I've heard from a lot of patients on their diagnosis journey, but it's also very different. Right. Because you were presenting with all of these really extreme (laughs) perianal complications, and yet it still took a long time for you to get that diagnosis. Yes. Yeah, that's bizarre to me. But also, it's not out of line from what we hear from people in racial and ethnic minorities about how their disease journey and their diagnosis goes. So, of course, you being the person that you are, (laughs) Mm -hmm. these experiences led you down a path. Absolutely. And it led you to found the color of Crohn's and chronic illness. Yes. So, would you tell me uh, the, the genesis of how you got there and decided to found your own nonprofit? It's interesting because I never thought that I would be in this space to be the founder of a nonprofit. I had owned a a bar, a bridal shop, um, international planning business, a money recovery business, a property management company. So entrepreneurship was my thing. It was my jam. But Mm -hmm. as I was going through my journey with sickness prior to diagnosis, I was very authentic and I told my story. Like I would tell people, I, I, this is happening to me. I don't know what it is. Like I was talking about it because I always spoke about how people in entrepreneurship, they think they have to work themselves to death. 
That's not what entrepreneurship is about. So I was very clear in conveying the importance of health and managing your health as I was talking about this on my, my page. So a lot of people would talk to me, they would send me messages about their health and I would respond and tell them like, this is what I did, this is what I'm going through. And then you fast forward to, aha, I have a diagnosis. So I'm telling them this is what happened and this is what I'm doing. I'm getting my IVs, I'm in the hospital, I'm getting um, iron infusions, like I'm sharing this. And so many people start to DM, like they're passing me to their family members, they're passing me to coworkers or people that they know. And I'm getting flooded with questions and how, how did you do this? How did you find that? I told my doctor about this. My doctor said I couldn't have Crohn's because black people don't have Crohn's. And you know, I'm hearing all these crazy stories and I'm thinking, okay, I cannot manage this in DMs. It's a lot. Let me create a group. So I said, okay, I'll just create a group and we can all talk and, and have parties together or whatever we're going to do. And I created this group and I said, it's a good space because now people see people that look like them, especially yeah. the ones like that several that said, I didn't know other black people had Crohn's disease. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, there's, so I said, oh, you know, come in this group. Let's talk about it. Let's just, you know, kumbaya. And I'm thinking, wow, these people, this patient population, this group needs so much more than a place to kumbaya. They need mm -hmm. a place where I remember one person, I said, you know, I was talking to her and I said, well, battling IBD, you know, it's an inflammatory disease. So this could happen because inflammation can present in any way. She goes, oh, no, I don't have um, IBD. I just have Crohn's. And I'm like, okay, so this is yet another health literacy thing, education, you know, this patient population, they need to be involved in the conversation, but they have to have a point of entry and they don't mm -hmm. because they're not equipped or taught or exposed to the very basics of health conversations, which is why they don't have the, the wherewithal to advocate for themselves. So I started seeing all these things and just like at first I was like, oh, maybe it's just me because I, I'm a naturally a researcher and, and I just mm -hmm. am exposed to this. But the more I saw the conversation and the questions, I said, oh, no, we need more. We need more. And it led me right to like the the name to me was just like a fun name. Like the, as soon as someone see it, they think minority color of Crohn's and chronic illness. OK, minority. Cool. And then I started to say, it's not just a fun name. It's it's a true metaphor for what we're standing for. Mm -hmm. And that's how it became a nonprofit. That's amazing. You identified a real need and saw how you could fill it. And like, you didn't, you didn't have to do that. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. Like, but it's your personality, right? That you felt that the calling to do it. Absolutely. Color of Crohn's and Chronic Illness, or also Kochi. Yes. So what are some of the programs that Kochi has in place now that are available to people? And what do you hope to develop in the future? And I recognize that that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is huge. Well, with this season of Kochi, uh, we, it's, we've been building out our programs. So the, everything that we have now, so let me backtrack. I have been doing everything by myself for so long. So I was really patient support initially. Like I would get on the, the phone with them, have these conversations with them, have these conversations with caregivers and kind of help steer them on how to 
properly create a, a care team. And I was doing all that myself. Fast forward now to December of this year, we will have an IBD support group. We'll also have an autoimmune disease support group because although we are heavily IBD focused, I would say at least 70%, we do have other disease spaces within our group. And with the black community, it's important to understand that while it may not say color of lupus, color of this, the chronic illness aspect, it gives people a sense of belonging. And that's important to me. So I don't ever want anyone to feel like they don't have a space to come and talk about their audio, autoimmune disease. Like we have patients and the patient mem community members is what I call them. We have community members with um, Sjogren's and Hashimoto's and MS. So that's why we have uh, umbrella IBD support group that we're starting. So those are two of the programs that we have. We also have one called Meet the Medic. So Meet the Medic is a program where a physician or someone in the medical field, they'll come on, they'll talk to the community, they can ask, the community can ask questions. And this is designed to be able to get them more comfortable with speaking to their healthcare providers, asking the tough questions, how to speak to this particular doctor. It'll also teach them what doctor they need for what issue, because a lot of people don't know who to go to. And they might rely on their PCP to, to shoot them over to the next person, but that may not necessarily be who they need to go to. We, we're, we're teaching these very basic functions of health communication and bringing in elements of comfort. Uh, in the future, we do have uh, an ambassador program that we've launched. So we are preparing to do like awareness day and advocacy on the Hill and really igniting the, the, programs that we want to get off the ground for health equity and being advocates and teaching them how to tell their stories and using their patient voice. That's the first line to me of equity and advocacy, because if they don't know how to do those things, they don't know how to be in the conversation, then it's a disservice to the community. You're exactly correct. I agree with you completely. So you've learned a lot from the IBD patients and the patients with other autoimmune or immune mediated conditions that you've talked with. Right. What are some of the challenges that they're facing? Are there things that are common threads? Is everyone individual? Like what, what are the things that you've learned? Oh my goodness. So the craziest thing about IBD is there could be about 15 of us in one room and we will all be totally different. Mm -hmm. The presentation of it is different. The symptoms are different. The one thing that I think is extremely common is the fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really because we're all dealing with some level of bleeding or either bleeding or constipation or blockage or something. And those make your body really tired. And so if you're at a loss of blood, the blood flow is, if you're a blockage, you're, you're having a blood flow issue, right? If you're bleeding, you're losing blood. So I think the the one commonality that I've learned in like all of these disease spaces is that there's fatigue, but everyone's story is so unique and it's so different. Where we can find a small commonality, my whole presentation is going to be different for yours or different from someone else's. And and I've we talk about that a lot. So I've encouraged that conversation in our group because people will often look and say, well, this is not like me or that's not like me. It doesn't have to be because IBD is so unique to the person that's experiencing it. It's mm -hmm. the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, you're, you're so right. I've had a lot of that same experience to the point where when you're doing the community outreach, it almost makes it more challenging because you can't, you're not answering the same questions more right. than once really because everyone is so individualized. Right, yes, absolutely. 
you know, there's obviously other advocacy groups in the space and yes. other nonprofits doing the work. Where do you think those groups could increase their outreach into black and brown communities? And are there ways that that Kochi can work with them in order to get some of the programs that you'd like to see up and running? Absolutely. Kochi, I think it's near it, it's unique because it's first of all, it's near and dear to me. Not only that I'm a patient, but I had a lot of people in the community trusting me to, mm-hmm. to, to help or support them. And I'm very transparent when I talk to them and have these conversations. So it in turn brings a lot of trust and connection. And one of the things we do is that we go and find people. And that is important. It's so important because in the Black community, we don't go where we don't feel wanted. You know, and that's a huge part of how we grow our community is we we talk to people and we go find them and we say, you're invited here. You can come here. And that in and of itself is like a job. <laughs> it's like one whole job because you're looking for people that are underserved or are otherwise felt left out. Or, you know, every time someone knew, we just had 30 new members um, in the community in the last two days. And every time someone finds us, they're like, oh, I've been looking for something like you or I've been looking for a place like this. And and I, I feel like, you know, I, I was the only one like me in this group. A lot of times when you're in a group and you feel like you're the only person, you don't talk as much, you don't connect as much, you don't communicate as much because you're going to feel like no one is going to understand not just your story and your journey at this moment, but when you think about experiment exploitation and you think about the healthcare system taking advantage of minorities and black communities, it's a conversation that can't be led by someone who doesn't look like the community. Because they're not they're not going to buy into that because you haven't bought into me. Like that's just how it goes. So they have to start with a representative of of the community first, and someone who already has the relationships with the community, like a a pastor. You can go to a church and see, like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. If the pastor buys into you, the church community buys into you, then you're now making some headway because the church is a staple in the black community, right? If you go to other organizations that have a heavy voice of minorities, they buy into you and they see what you're doing. Then you now have another leg in because you're now partnered with this organization that already has the patient population that you're looking to. When we look at some of the studies, a lot of them are based on on populations or areas or counties or states. I mean, there's more than um, 90% Caucasian. You're not looking for me to be involved because you went to something that's already 90% knocking me out. It's not even what the the U.S. is and they're using data that's not representative. So you're not going to even find our people in that population. Research is a slow walk. Like, you know, it takes time, but it's even slower if you were never able to participate. Like almost none of, maybe four or five people in this 200 group plus community has ever been asked about participating in trials. Mm -hmm. So why would they? Right. (laughs) And we need other groups to be able to take part and to understand the community and what needs to be done. So, and this is another big question for you, but we need to think about legislators. Yes. We need to think about healthcare providers, medical societies, mm-hmm. industry, like pharma companies. Yes. And what are some of the things that you would like to see them do in order to help them reach black and brown communities? <laughs> I'm laughing <laughs> because their marketing often isn't even catered towards black and brown communities. 
Like the very thing we see on billboards or their websites or on their social media or things that it's, it's not even catered to us. It doesn't look like us. And I've had this conversation. This is a, not an easy conversation to have with pharma or industry or, or these other companies that want to attach this. You can't affirmative action this thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can't do it. You can't say, oh, we have a net. Let's stick a face up there. Let's get a black mm-hmm. face, get a brown face, get a Hispanic face. You can't AA this thing. You have to genuinely and authentically connect with leaders in this space so that they can get you in the door. Because the people buy into their leadership. And if you're not connected to the leadership, you're not going to connect to the people. It's just not going to happen no matter how much you try to stick a face or something there. Because we're past that now. (laughs) The time where that was the point of entry is gone. Mm -hmm. That's just, and that's really simple. You know, it's gone. You need to talk to people that represent these communities or they represent the patient population that you're trying to support and help because i don't think that it's a numbers game of you know we're we're just we need to get them so we can get money from them they genuinely need the data they genuinely need the insight but it doesn't come that way it doesn't come by just you know trying to um disingenuinely connect you can't do it that way so everything needs to come from a place of authenticity yes and we clearly haven't gotten there yet. We're trying, though. I mean, I, I see people trying. And I think there's some really huge issues, like mm-hmm. in health in- inequities and disparities where, you know, people can, can kind of say, this is the kind of healthcare this person has been faced with because they live in this zip code. So their access is only this. And the likelihood that they're, they're living this way is this. Like, there's already these socioeconomic data points that we know and that already shows like where people are with with their ability to manage their health care you know i've been working on something that i'd like to initiate and um it's called omni and i really am an advocate of telehealth i love it but when you're in our disease space it can't just stop at telehealth and there has to be an extender to that right for access because even there are even people that aren't able to participate in telehealth because they don't know how to operate phones. There's a, a certain age gap, you know, in, in being able to have the ability to do that. But I love it. And I really am working on something called Omni Health. And Omni Health is where health everywhere you need to be. Omni is, you know, ev- everywhere, right? And with Omni Health, it would be like a mobile situation where people that are facing fatigue like us they're facing uh, mobility issues like us they're they're dealing with the um re- they don't have a sitter they're taking care of elderly parents you know because that's what's going on in these spaces they don't have transportation they don't have um the money excess capital to pay for parking they don't even have specialists in their area so access starts to get shrink 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 it goes all the way down but omni is something where they could book they can get their vitals done they can get their blood work done and all this can kind of be shipped over to the doctor so it makes telehealth extending so it's not just telehealth where you get to see me and tell me something but now i actually have some some real metrics and some real testing and things they can say hey i received this from omni about blah 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 blah. your blood work doesn't look like this or it looks like that i need you to now go in here i need you to get this done and with omni 
you know, you're the first person I'm talking about this with because it's like <laughs> my vision. But with Omni, it would actually expand the abilities and the need for telehealth because people will be so much better cared for because it doesn't limit them to just a FaceTime or a, voice, a video, but it also gives the doctor more tangible results to be able to give you a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of reading about telehealth and writing about it and uh, interviewing mm -hmm. specialists and also interviewing patients about um, how they feel about telehealth. Right. But I've never heard it talked about in addressing disparities. So do you think that telehealth is a way to help address some of the disparities? And in, and in what way do you think it might help? So one way that I think that it does help is that it eliminates the patient from having to leave their space, right? So they have more access to different doctors, the ones that aren't within their, their realm. Like that's a huge thing because now you're getting access to the things that you need. And for this community, there's a fear of being sometimes in hospitals, sometimes being in a doctor's office, you know, and now the doctor can actually be in front and say, okay, this is what you're dealing with. This is what you're going through. And now the, the disparity of um, access, you know, is now off the table because you're, you're building up the relationships with people and zip codes that, that live in less than stellar environments, mm -hmm. you know? So that's one disparity that it really does tackle. Uh, and that's, you know, in the social determinants of health, you know, it's your neighborhood, your environment, you're not stuck to the doctors that, that have to reach you like this. You're really, the world is your oyster, right? Now that there's telehealth, you have the ability to access who you need. That makes a lot of sense. So, Melody, I want to ask you, though, a little bit more of a personal question. I want because <laughs> you just had a second baby. I did. You're, you're an IVD mom. So I want to hear about your kids. Tell me about your kids and what they're up to lately. Oh, my gosh. These kids are so amazing and draining. I love them so much, both at the same time. Let me tell you, the baby, she's like, you're going to listen to me. I want this bottle. I want a cuddle. I want a laugh. She commands and demands everyone's attention in the house. My husband jokes with her all the time and he goes, you think you run things in here? You think you run things in here? And then he goes, but you do. And then he like snuggles up with her and kisses and smooches her. And we ask him, do you think having a daughter is different from having sons? And he's like, no, she's just a baby. It's no difference. Yeah. Right. He's totally enamored. My son, he's getting so big. He's so smart and he's such a great big brother. I, I like, I can't thank God, but you know, having parents that both battle illnesses, my husband is battling prostate cancer. And then I had IBD. He's always been such an intuitive and intuitive kid. And, um, just our, our cheerleaders. I remember when I couldn't walk up the stairs one day and he would watch me. And then one day, like, I just was so spent. And I was, try I had to literally lift my leg with my, my hands. And he stood at the top and he was three years old. Mommy, you can do it. You, you can do it. And I just turned on my camera and I started recording him because I said, this is so funny that this three-year-old is telling me I can do it. He's like, come on, mommy, three more, two more, one more. Yay, mommy, you did it. And so he has that same energy and personality the personality today and we're just so blessed you know i cannot thank god enough for bringing us our daughter zari at this time her name means help of god 
And I think she helps my husband through a lot of what he's experiencing. And then our son, Zayden, means God of fruitfulness. And he just multiplies all the joy that we have in our life. We're grateful. That's so amazing. Of course, I, I lovingly follow you on Instagram, and I really enjoy seeing the pictures of your kids. And I think a lot of women with IBD and other immune-mediated conditions worry a lot about how they're going to take care of their children they do. because of their illness, and then they worry about the effect on the children. But I think, and I've seen this in my own kids, and you were just describing it in your son, that our children are so empathetic. Yes. And I think that they're conduits of what we give off. So even if we're battling like illness and they see our compassion and our our love, my my husband sees this and he's now like becoming an advocate in his own right. And I'm so proud of him. But my son sees it and he'll say, how are you feeling today? Mommy, you can't eat that. You know what that will happen to you. But you can't eat pizza. You can't like he watches my diet more than anyone in the world. And I'm like, if you don't get away from me, let me eat this piece of candy. He was like, ah, ah, ah. But they, they do, they're conduits and they soak it up and they give it back to, they become rubber and they, whatever we do, they're bouncing, bouncing off of us. No, I don't think any mom out there should be, be worried about it. You follow what your healthcare team says. And if you feel like that's not right for you, get a second opinion. You're allowed to, and you will do this. Like you will be great. I mean, I love IBD moms. I follow IBD moms too. I'm a fan, fan girl here. And you know, it's important to have that kind of support. So people who don't have it plug into the communities because they give us a lot of the knowledge. I can't tell you how many, like there's been people on IBD moms that have seen, I guess, me through that. And they've sent me DMs. How do you feel about breastfeeding? Or how do you feel? And I'm like, girlfriend, you're going to knock it out if you try to do it. And if you don't try to do it, you're still going to knock it out because you're still going to be a great mom. You're purpose empowered to do that. That's amazing. I love that answer. Melody, you are the bright spot (laughs) in all of this. Melody, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me. Thank you so much for creating Kochi and for being in a space you were sorely needed. And I wish you all the best with the group. And of course, I imagine that we will be working together, I'm pretty sure. Um, But thank you so much for talking with me about all of this. Thank you, Amber. I love you. I appreciate you. Please continue to pave the way because honestly, you're one of the first advocates that I saw in there. And uh, when I was looking for advocates on social media and you doing what you do, like talking about all, like, I hope that people that are listening to this know how many stories you've written, how many articles, how much information research that you do, how much you invest in this, because you've impacted my life as well. I go and I read your stories and I'm like, aha, it's always, it always leaves me with some message and wanting more. So thank you. Thank you for deeming me worthy to be able to come on your podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Now I'm super uncomfortable. and support for people of color in the chronic illness community. Melody is doing the work to address these concerns through Kochi, including offering a closed Facebook support group and her Meet the Medic program, which gives community members a forum to ask questions of healthcare providers. You can get involved and follow Kochi on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and donate through Kochi.org. I will put all the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm Amber Tresca, reminding you that healthcare is a human right.
production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Theme music, mix, and sound design is by Cooney Studio.